Welcome to Beauty Island, the award-nominated beauty podcast that celebrates life and lipstick. I am your host, beauty journalist, Brittany Stewart. Each episode of Beauty Island, I sit down with a guest and ask them about the eight beauty products that have a special memory or meaning for them. The ones they'd take to a desert island or beauty island that I am sending them off to. Maybe it's the beauty product that reminds them of their mum, the product that defined their teens, or the perfume that instantly sparks a memory of a special place or person. Along the way, we find out more about their life, career, and the people and events that have shaped them into who they are today. As has become regular, my usual disclaimer in these strange and slightly terrifying times that this interview was recorded well before Corona was a common word in our vernacular. Can you remember those times? So I really hope that you enjoy this episode as a virus respite and of course that you are doing okay. Today my guest is Sarah Davidson, co-founder of Matcha Maiden and creator of Seize the Yay. Incredibly driven and articulate, Sarah has already had a number of careers and she doesn't do anything by halves. The results speak for themselves. Sarah shared her journey from ballerina to lawyer to entrepreneur to funtrepreneur, as she calls it, and the products that have marked her beauty journey along the way. We talked about being adopted and how that has helped shape her identity, how falling ill led to the discovery and foundation of what has become the mega successful Matcha Maiden Empire, her sensible and reassuring advice about taking the leap into the unknown and the best foundation for acne-prone skin she's been wearing for 15 years. Sarah has interviewed some incredibly successful and inspiring people on her brilliant podcast, Seize the Yay, some of the most inspiring minds in the world, some might argue, but I hope you'll find, as I did, that Sarah herself is as equally as inspiring as any of them. As we're forced to stay home and maybe reflect on our lives and career and priorities, I hope you'll find comfort or maybe even a spark in her story. As always, if you enjoy this episode and the podcast, please subscribe if you're not already, write five stars, and I would absolutely love it and greatly, greatly appreciate it if you're able to write a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes just 30 seconds means more people can find the podcast and makes my day too. If you're listening and you have Instagram, don't forget you can share a screenshot on your Instagram story and tag me at Beauty Island Podcast so I can see it too. And if you need some more beauty escape, sign up to my beauty newsletter, It's a Beauty, or find me on Instagram at Brittany Beauty BTS. All those links are in the show notes. Now over to Sarah. Enjoy. Sarah, welcome to Beauty Island. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be sitting down with you and talking all things beauty and beyond. The place that I usually like to start, which makes sense, is at the beginning, which is, can you, <laughs> to state the obvious, can you remember your first memory of beauty? Yes. So I, my very first career, or oh, I don't know if it was a career because I was so young, but uh, the first sort of venture that I ever had was as a ballerina. Uh, I actually ended up doing all forms of dance, but ballet was how I started. And I was three at the time. So I started very, very young and I was convinced that I wanted to be a ballerina. I did it very, very seriously up until the time I was 15. But because of the world of performing and concerts and, you know, costumes and theatrical makeup, my first experience of beauty was probably before I even knew what it was, where we had our concert and it was the first time that we got to put makeup on. And I honestly can't remember which age I was when we started instead of our parents just 
chucking us in tutus. There would have been a year where suddenly I decided that I wanted to wear makeup and I was going to do my hair and mum wasn't going to be able to do it as well as I could. But my my first memories of beauty were in a very theatrical cosmetics sense, <laughs> sort of backstage with those uh, big mirror lights that have like light globes all around. It was very uh, a performer's interpretation of beauty and I was always fascinated by makeup and creating you know an identity through makeup and characters and storytelling so from very early on I would you know experiment with different eyeshadows and lipsticks and because of ballet I sort of owned a lot of makeup probably earlier than most people would need to or even be interested (laughs) and yeah I was fascinated by it. (laughs) So the first product on your list is one that stems from that time which is I think the ultimate in a dancer's arsenal which is the Wella hair gel. Tell me a bit more about that that product. Oh gosh I just I'm you know still to this day quite a bit of a perfectionist and I think that stemmed probably from being very disciplined as a dancer and the Wella hair gel I just remember slicking so much of that stuff it came in like a little it might even still come in it a plastic sort of container like a round uh, little container that um it I can't even remember the vintage Wella logo that had sort of a wave and it was yep. like pink and purple and it was just this thick gel and I would slick my hair back to within an inch of its life to just make sure there were no flyaways like my bun had to be perfect and even from you know I I still again I can't even remember the age but as long as I can remember I knew how to do my own bun and you know I had all my pins and my uh, hair nets and I knew which particular hair ties I liked that would you know have a tighter bun and not let as many hairs out as other ones Uh, and I just remember the smell and the texture of the gel and what it felt like on my hands because every day after school I would jump in the car and like sort of change into my ballet stuff under my uniform and then do my hair in the car and so I'd be sort of like you know how cars vibrate there'd be just gel going (laughs) everywhere and I've got these big chunks of it Uh, and then you would take your ponytail out after class and because of the gel, like your ponytail would fall, the bun would fall out into a ponytail, but my hair would stay, like the actual hair stuck to my head would just stay (laughs) slicked back, which now I think is kind of a look, like it's a bit of a thing. Just uh, ahead of your time. Yeah, back then I'd brush it out and then it would go all crusty and uh, yeah, I'd have to wash it and I just have such, so, so many memories of that hair gel. (laughs) So from that early introduction to now, how has your relationship with beauty changed? Is it is it something that you enjoy like playing with, experimenting, or is it purely more of a functional thing now? Definitely since leaving ballet around 15, I stopped needing to engage in the artistry of it so much and it became more functional like just day to day or kind of going out, what was I interested in? But I think because I had so much training on you know, how to open your eyes for the stage and how to contour your cheekbones and your decolletage. And I sort of learnt that through the theatrical side of it with stage lights. It translated really well when contouring came into fashion and wearing lashes out came into fashion. But I just, uh, I dulled it down a lot from kind of your full swan lake, like big theatrical eye makeup. But yeah, I've always stayed interested in experimenting with different products. I'd say that probably uh, in the past couple of years, 
uh, it's become very uh, more natural focused. I never used to be aware of the contents of what I would use or, um, you know, how much stuff was on your skin and whether it was clogging your pores. I, I wasn't so aware of that. I definitely came out of ballet, went straight into a phase where it was very superficial and visual and just like, how can I look amazing which now looking back I'm like gosh I did not look amazing I had so much eyeliner on it you know you and you just cake it on so I went through that phase now it's more of an accentuation thing and yeah and a functional thing it's what can I do to a look after my skin but b uh accentuate and um give myself the confidence that I need without kind of clogging my whole face up and looking a bit plastic (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the tendency um when people who are in positions like you do really successful in business we always try to look back at young Sarah or teenage Sarah and see whether the signs were there I know you've previously described yourself as you know extroverted you're always interested in people and learning and kind of driven by curiosity but what was kind of young and teenage Sarah like Oh, goodness. I think, yeah, looking back and comparing, there are some parts that have stayed exactly the same. And, uh, you know, my whole law career was a little bit of a stray away from that. I've always been very equal in my sort of academic, nerdy, uh, very detail-orientated kind of OCD side and then totally opposite creative wild spirited crazy child I used to have ringlets when I was a kid so I was like a little Einstein baby with hair just everywhere amazing and yeah I've just always had this strange contrast between very orderly and very chaotic Uh, and then in sort of school and then academics and then career that translated into being very uh, academic in one side and then very arty farty on the other Uh, and that it's carried over. I think uh, I, I went through a very bratty, rebellious phase, which oh. was a bit out of character. And I think part of that was the adolescent brain is just a crazy place to be. <laughs> Another part was probably finishing ballet and realising how much, you know, the rigid training schedule and looking after myself, uh, exercising, eating in a particular way, all of that had stopped me knowing about boys and parties and (laughs) all the stuff that's part of a normal young woman's teenagehood. So I went too far the other direction. I went from very disciplined to too far the other way and then swung back to somewhere in the middle and have, uh, yeah, I I kept through uni, kept that balance of both. And then law, I just went very much one direction. And now I think the career I've ended up in has swung all the way back the other. So this parts of me have always been the same. It's more just how much I go one way or the other. And um, and growing up, were you are you an only child or do you have siblings? I have a younger brother. Yeah, so we have a really interesting story, and I think that might have something to do with this whole lifelong thirst for experience and doing lots of different things and kind of pursuing all those parts of my personality. So we were both born in South Korea to the same orphanage, four years apart, different biological parents uh, who we have very, very little information on. It was the 80s, you know, in Asia. It was a, a, South Korea was quite a poor country at the time. Uh, but we were, I was six months old. He was five months old when we were adopted by our parents who are white, country bumpkin, Caucasian Australians. <laughs> so we've always had a very interesting and unique cultural identity of looking completely Asian and being culturally country bumpkin white Caucasian Australians (laughs) so uh, we went to pick him up when I was four we're 
the complete opposite of each other. Uh, I'm super adventurous. He's a creature of comfort. He's very habitual and um, not super academic, but we're very close and we always have been. He walked me down the aisle at our wedding. Uh, we've been close our whole life. And um, yeah, the Koreans are Buddhist and they believe that the child picks the family, not the other way around. And obviously in our case, my, our parents literally chose <laughs> us, but um, <laughs> I think we were all meant to be together on the journey that we are. So oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a really good relationship. And obviously you spoke of doing ballet from such a young age, from three to 15. I suppose when you are a teenager, it gets to that point, particularly with something as demanding as ballet, where you have to decide whether it's something you're going to pursue. Tell me, tell me about that decision to, or why you ended up giving ballet up or stepping away from that. Because yeah. I think you, you were dancing with the Australian ballet. Like yeah. it was serious. Yeah, it was like a thing. That's why I call it my career, even though I was like, oh my God, I was like 14 years no, old. still counts. <laughs> yeah, it was... Honestly, my whole childhood was consumed with it and I had the most amazing time. I attribute so many things in my life since then, like time management, self-discipline, drive, and and it it teaches you, you know, kind of being so dedicated to something so young really does instill great uh, habits in you that carry over to later on. But I, I did think most of that time that I wanted to be a ballerina and it was only really... Uh, In year nine, I changed schools. So I kept doing ballet for that year. And I think I did really hate the transition at the beginning. But I realized very quickly that I actually did have quite an academic side if I was applied myself, which I don't know that I did back then. But towards the end of that year, I got the opportunity in my dancing career to then go full time the next year. And very quickly it had gone from, oh, this is this thing that's consumed my whole childhood. I want to do it when I grow up to now you're growing up. Like it's now that you actually have to decide that. It's so early in dancing that you do go full time and set yourself up for getting into the actual corps de ballet and then going up up the ladder that way that suddenly I was like, it's all or nothing. I can't keep doing school. You can do it, you know, a few hours a day, but you go straight into a very structured all in to dancing. And at the end of that year, mum sat me down in a very similar chat to sort of the keep the doors open chat that we had in convincing me to try to move schools. Uh, She just said, look, you love dancing now. It is your everything. But try and understand that right now that decision means closing lots of doors. Whereas if you finish school, you can still go back to dancing. You know, lots of doors are open. But if you go the ballet way, then you'll it'll be so hard to come back to year 10 when you're sort of in your 20s. So just finish school. And if you still adore it, then you can go back then. If you love it that much, you will know and you'll go back. And, you, you know, I, I was she said you can still do casual classes, but you just don't do the full-time thing. And I think... I, I don't really remember how I came to that decision, but I think it was just very careful uh, and very well-delivered guidance from mum who was so supportive of either way, but just really, you know, hammered in the message that it was a, a big, big decision to leave school. So I th- said, okay, I'll just do another year and see. And by the end of the next year, which was the end of year 10, I had loved not dancing. And it's it's not that I I miss it every day, I still do. But I realised that I didn't want it as a career. It had kind of served its purpose as a chapter. It had set up such a beautiful childhood and and set me well into my teens. 
but I discovered so many other things in that year. I went on two exchanges. Uh, I was studying languages at school. I got to travel. I sort of saw what else was out there. And when I did use my brain, what other options might be out there. And suddenly it wasn't even a compromise. And I'm so glad that mum was able to convince me early enough that I didn't make a decision too soon and never know. And I think that's that was the first major sliding doors moment of many sliding doors moments. And I'm very passionate about that concept because I think it is, you often think that you're going to know you're at a crossroads, but sometimes you don't until later. And uh, yeah, I, I look back and think, gosh, if I had gone full time, I wouldn't have made it. I was good, but I wasn't, you know, there's a lot of ingredients that you need to have to make it like top level professional. And I was already injured then and had a recurring injury. So, and I didn't have the natural genetic structure in my arches and in everything to support the career that I, that would have made it worth giving up. And I think I maybe knew that, but I really only could understand it a year later. And I, yeah, I'm glad I would have lasted maybe two years, got injured and then had to go back and start again. <laughs> so it worked out well in the end. Absolutely. The second product on your list is the Body Shop Shea Butter. Yes. Tell me about your memories with this one. <laughs> so this was probably quite intimately related with that same period of time where I was realising, oh, boys, <laughs> boys are fun. Ballet isn't everything. And realised that if you don't moisturise as a routine or as a ritual, your legs get flaky and dry, <laughs> especially in winter. But at school you're wearing, you know, dresses in summer and like we had tunics in winter and I was like my knees are really like white and knobbly and flaky and I just never really I always had tights on at ballet so I just never really cared about it and I remember thinking oh my gosh like moisturizing is a thing like it's an activity that you have to do your skin just doesn't exist like that <laughs> and that was the very first moisturizer I had and I think a lot of us have really fond memories of the body shop and all the different scents and flavors and uh, it's many many years like 10 15 years later I'm now a body shop ambassador and I work with them regularly and it's so lovely that they still have that same product the smell brings back so many memories and it's you know community trade shea butter for that supports beautiful communities and um yeah I have such fond memories of just getting ready like every morning even though I went to an all-girls school like who was going to look at my legs but it was really <laughs> important that they were moisturized just in case just in case you might see someone at the station like who knows you went on to study law mm -hmm. and became an R lawyer and it was three I think about three years into your law career when I suppose one of those other sliding door moments yeah. started to to happen so tell me about the foundations of Matcha Maiden and how that idea came to be Yes, I think even more of a significant sliding doors moment because it wasn't planned or spurred on by anything. It was a complete accident, but as it turns out, uh, meant to be in the best kind of way. So I, looking back, am so glad that I left law, but at the time, honestly, wasn't unhappy in that career. I think I, I was very grateful to have a job in a time where it would come out of the GFC. It was very hard for people to get graduate positions. And I spent three years just learning. I had a, a really great mentors there. I had great opportunities. I was able to travel. And I'm not even sure I was aware that my creative side had started to fade. I, I don't even think I'd had time to reflect. I just kind of was like, great, this is a job. I'm in the workforce. Oh my God. I'm like getting adult. Blah, I have to pay my own <laughs> hell insurance. Like suddenly there was all this stuff to deal with. And slowly, slowly though, I had lost the time and 
space mentally to have anything creative on the side. So probably around that three-year mark, I started to feel a little bit itchy and was like, oh, like what's that thing that's missing from this? Now I know what it was. But at the time I was like, maybe one day, like in five, ten years, I might move on to something else. But I wasn't trying to leave or planning it at the time. So alongside that, in the first year of law, I had the opportunity to go with my now husband to Rwanda uh, to spend a month in a beautiful school out in the countryside because he'd been working with a charity called YGAP that supported the schools through one of their campaigns. And uh, we had the most transformative experience there, but I came home with a parasite and it ended up, I just completely ignored all the signs. Went back straight back to work and lost 15 kilos because I couldn't digest properly and I just was ignoring, you know, how nauseous I was feeling, how bloated I was all the time and it took completely collapsing before I realised uh, that something was wrong. So in that process, uh, as I was learning to sort of nurture my adrenal glands and, and recover and actually learn how to rest and slow down, I was banned from coffee because I would have a complete meltdown if I tried to have one it was just too strong for my body when I was that you know underweight I'd get the shakes I'd have a panic attack my heart rate would go out of control but I got sent to Hong Kong with my law firm to work on some deals over there and discovered matcha because matcha's everywhere in Asia and you know you could get it here but it was very sort of you know, it was flying under the radar. You could buy it if you knew about it, but it was very expensive and it was sort of a ceremonial special occasion thing. But in Asia, it was everywhere. It was like all the way from high-end cafes all the way down to Starbucks. Like you just could get it in any cafe. And I realized it's this amazing form of caffeination that gives you a buzz, but instead of the spike and then crash you get with coffee, it's sustained over a few hours, which is why the Zen Buddhist monks originally started to use matcha in that way and why it's continued to be, you know, a big source of, of uh, caffeination in, in the East. So I got hooked. Nick came over. He got hooked. He realized that he could cut down on some of his coffees if he had matcha in the afternoon. He'd sleep better. We came home, couldn't find it, and literally out of our own selfish needs, which is how <laughs> many businesses start, I think, we were just like, so... Uh, <laughs> how are we going to get this stuff for ourselves? And out of that was born the idea to just put some in a bag and maybe do a little hobby together on the side. And I could put it on my LinkedIn that I was an entrepreneur <laughs> and then I'd just go back on my merry way. And it, it turned out that a lot of other people were in that position of wanting it but couldn't find it. So when we launched, it went really well and that was five years ago. And before we talk more about that, before we leave Teenage Sarah, I just want to talk about the third product on your list, which is your Sports Girl Bronzing Cream. <laughs> so tell me about your love of this, where this came from. Oh, gosh, another one of those products. And I think this is why our beauty journey is so wonderful to explore and why this podcast is amazing. Uh, it just brings back so many memories, even to think about the packet and the smell. <laughs> so I had a big phase, uh, probably from pretty much straight after ballet and right up until the middle of uni of just partying. I am such a nana these days and people who know me only since wellness are like, really? You went out at night? But people who knew me then are like, really? You have a wellness <laughs> business? <laughs> so uh, I used to host at a couple of nightclubs. Uh, we were out sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Uh, because of dancing, I think I used to get, that was my new outlet for dancing, was getting on a dance floor and just spending all night there. It's also where Nick and I met uh, and 
we just got obsessed with this sports girl bronzer, which was this, I think they still have it. I might be called something else now, but it used to be in a bronze squeezy tube and we'd go through a tube like every fortnight. Like we would <laughs> use so much. You'd put one layer on, you'd let it dry, you'd put another layer on and then we'd have to do each other's back. So before we'd go out, we'd literally get in our undies, do one whole layer, watch TV while it dried, do a whole other layer, watch TV while it dried again, then do our makeup and hair. Like it was a, a, a full ritual that I loved and I used to look forward to so much. And every time I smell it, it takes me back to being with my girlfriends, getting ready to go out. And then at the end of the night, you'd have, you know, you'd people spilling drinks on you and you'd have like streaks all down you and you'd get in the shower and all the bronze would just come off. But uh, I, I think it was kind of before we could actually fake tan ourselves with developing products like Saint-Tropez was probably the only one that I knew of back then and I was completely retarded at using it like I'd never do it right and it ended up with big splotches and then it was permanent so uh, it was our way of kind of getting tanned to go out and then being able to wash it off after and you know I'd sleep at one of my girlfriends used to have white linen which I've I've never been able to sustain that in my whole life Uh, and I would stay over and like in the morning there'd be these big brown patches in the bed just so many happy memories. As you said that discovery of matcha was five years ago and um, it was amazing because you really were learning on the job you and Nick building this business and I think I know you sold out within the first week in six months you were stocked in Urban Outfitters which is just incredible. Tell me about the point when this fun project as you described it became a business in its own right and Mm. having to make that decision to leave what you thought was going to be your career in law and kind of shift gears to something else. Yeah it was uh, probably I mean, it was fast in the scheme of things, but at the time it felt like it happened quite gradually. It wasn't like we launched and then we had a business, even though, I mean, technically we had a business. But for me, because I stayed, you know, as you mentioned, in the job for another six months, it didn't feel like really we were risking anything. or re- And because we weren't risking anything, it was like, oh, we're not really doing it properly. It's just kind of this thing on the side that it's going well now, but, you know, we're not kind of hedging our bets on it or anything. We're just, I'm staying at work. Nick still had his agency. Uh, And it wasn't until the Urban Outfitters contract came in that we realised this is a stockist that we, if we come on board with them, there's a lot of onboarding. You know, if you do get the contract but you miss a shipping date, like everything was very, very serious. You could lose the opportunity very quickly. We sort of were like, if we say yes, we're saying yes, this business is going to operate like someone who can actually fulfil an order to Urban Outfitters. And I think we, you know, we probably reached the serious stage a couple of months before that, but we only realised it when we got something so serious that it was put in writing, it was in a contract, we had to sign that we would agree to get things there and we couldn't just wing it anymore. And that's when I realised if someone, if a company that big across the globe has found our business off the back of its brand presence online and then actually ordered to pay money for it (laughs) and trusts us to get it there and sell it to the US market, we're serious. This is a serious thing and this has... Even the fact that we needed insurance in the US, like this has serious consequences and we need to treat it like a real business. And I think it was that day when we got the email that I was like, hobby went out the window and business became, you know, the mentality that we took on. And that was also the moment where we had to consider if we do say yes, how are we going to get it there? And the only way was to have another person put almost every day into packing because we were still packing it ourselves. So that's how I resigned was literally an opportunity forced the decision very quickly 
I didn't have much time to think about it. But looking back, I realized that it was the scariest thing I've ever done. But at the same time, there are ways to make your decisions less scary and less of a jump by doing things like keeping your job. If I jump straight away, the risk is enormous because there's it hasn't proven itself. The idea isn't even out there yet. But by waiting six months, saving a little bit more money and having a contract to jump to straight away kind of made the, the gap between those two options a lot smaller and the risk profile a lot lower. So I think that extra six months allowed us to make the transition a bit more seamless rather than going from nil to something. And I and that's why I think, you know, often I say to people, if they're teetering on the edge of leave your job, on the one hand, I'm all about done is better than perfect, start before you're ready. But at the same time, don't start before you've done anything. <laughs> like give it a little bit of time because we have to pay bills. People have dependents, you know, they might have children or family responsibilities. There is the reality of bills and I think if you can give yourself a little bit of time in both, with a foot in both doors to give yourself time to build up to that decision, it becomes less less overwhelming. And I suppose as the business has obviously grown, those kind of rules and things that you get in a traditional cho- job, you kind of have more control over. But how have you managed? You describe yourself as quite a type A person <laughs> going from that where, you know, as, an, as a entrepreneur, as you call it, it's that level goes out the window yeah. how, how has that kind of been a gigantic transition probably bigger than any other transition has been from like my whole entire training lawyers are paid to be society's risk averse people we're meant to identify everything that could go wrong and provide for it and I became very good at that I mean that was how I was paid to to do my job and you can't survive in business if you have to get everything perfect and you agonize over every detail and you only think about what's wrong because you won't ever do anything. I had to completely flip to actually if you don't feel ready and it feels a little bit risky, you should probably do it. But I think I always come back to, you know, I love quotes. And one of the big quotes I come back to is you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. So when I was around lawyers all the time, we all thought that way. But then jumping to being particularly being in a relationship and a business partnership with someone who had only lived the other way because he's always had his own businesses. Nick was very good at explaining and showing and encouraging my thinking to change so that we could actually release new products and lock in big distributorships and not need all the detail to be okay. But I reckon it took maybe two or three years for me to relax into surrendering like it will be okay what is the worst case scenario it's not usually that bad (laughs) I think it it just goes to show that you can rewire your own thought pathways if you surround yourself with the right people and make a commitment to doing it and you have a reason why but yeah it was very 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 difficult and it it also was difficult for me to go from a place of such certainty and predictability in terms of where I would be in five years what you know, pay rate I would be at in five years, who would my superior be in five years, everything was clear. And you know, A-type personalities like that, a level of certainty, and I thrive off it. So going from that to, I don't know where I'm getting my salary next week, or if our business will be afloat in two months, like you can't predict anything. And you also can't, you know, no one's telling you what to do or when to stop working or when to start working or which you come to a fork in the road, they're mutually exclusive. No one tells you where to put your money. Like there's no rules and there's no guidance. Uh, and that was also very hard to adjust to because I didn't 
I didn't know how to rest. I didn't know how to have a break. I didn't know how to preserve my relationship because we'd always had boundaries automatically because my job put them there. So I think the first two or three years of business was just a huge transition in every single area. But now I would say I'm a much meer me, if that makes sense, than I was in the other role. The fourth product on your list is one that will serve you well on the island, which is Pawpaw Lip Balm. (laughs) Tell me about your nearing obsession with this product, it sounds like. Yeah, I uh, can't actually remember a me who didn't use it. Uh, I actually don't use it anymore, but for most of my life, through every place I've lived, I've done seven or eight exchanges in my life, lived in you know so many different countries and different places, and I always had to have Lucas's pawpaw ointment on me. Those little red tubes consumed my life. Like there'd be three in my car, four under the bed, two in my pillow, all through uni. And when I was studying, I kind of lick my lips when I concentrate and on legal readings and then writing essays. And so I would just go through like tubes and <laughs> tubes. And because it's good for burns and scars and ointments and itches and you know you nappy rush you put on everything I would just end up having it like all over my body at all times uh so I I think I pretty much graduated straight from lip smackers in primary school to pawpaw and then spent you know 15 years using pawpaw and then I can't remember who it was but someone got it into my mind that it has an inbuilt addiction in that your lips become dry without it, so then you can't survive without it, which I have done no research on. But I got it in my mind that that's what happens. There is a lip balm theory, not specific to poor pop, but just lip balm in general, that the more you use it, the more you need it. For yes, sure. right. And maybe it's because your lips stop producing enough moisture or because you get used to the feeling of having more moisture than you normally would. I don't know. But I got like this idea in my head that I was too dependent on it and that and also that I also had a bit of a natural beauty revolution when I got really sick and started to be very conscious of putting like I stopped using petroleum jelly and Vaseline and all those kinds of things so I had a little break and went completely just tried to not use any lip balm at all um and at that break I don't know how it's been probably a few years now but yeah a big part of my life was like you wouldn't see me without a red tube in my hand (laughs) You touched on it before, obviously, you and your now husband, Nick, when you were in law, had very, you said, obviously, with the long hours of law, spent a lot of time apart. And then suddenly you jump into this business where you're spending 100% of your time together almost. (laughs) Now, five years on, how have you found like the secret to successfully working with your partner? Oh, and it's been a journey. I can can tell you, I think that was, again, one of the even more challenging parts of the transition was that I didn't go from a career into a business with a separate business partner. It was the the person I was already living with. Uh, And I think we did have, you know, a year of, at the end of our first year, I was like, we're kind of housemates that work together. We didn't have any separate time for our relationship. And before that was forced, it was automatic. It was as soon as I got home, we were in relationship mode. Even if he hadn't stopped working, I had stopped working. So one of us was enforcing a boundary without realising. And the weekends, if I worked on the weekends, you know, it was only for a few hours or I might have to go physically go somewhere. But then when I left, I clocked off. Suddenly we were in each other's faces, also working from home and working from our bedroom. And I think the key has just been boundaries. But that's the same with any relationship, including the one with yourself. I went from 
every boundary in a corporate context to no boundaries whatsoever and realized I thought that was great at the start. I was like, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to stop working. Like everything's work and play and like fun. And I, I love what I do. So, you know, that quote, like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Like that's not true <laughs> because I burnt out based on that mentality of not blurring the lines too much. Uh, so I think around the time when we realized we hadn't had a date in a year, we hadn't had any separate time for ourselves we hadn't gone on a holiday we hadn't even done a weekend away we started to re-implement not to the level of corporate but re-implement some of the time and communication boundaries that we had before but kind of force them back into our life so treating weekdays different to weekends even if we do work on weekends it's clear that you're making an exception Uh, finishing at a particular time and then trying to put our devices away And we both work often on different time zones, which is kind of difficult. But at least if you set the default rule, you acknowledge when you're making an exception rather than it just being like free for all at all times. Sundays, we try and really quarantine because it's a weekend in every time zone in the world. So that's the day where we'll have a big sleep in, go out to brunch, take the dog for a walk and try to only do activities that are for joy. And the the idea from my podcast of Play TA Uh, and yeah I think communication is the biggest thing like we wouldn't have been able to fix those problems if we hadn't been able to say to each other there is a problem and that's where the where things start to break down is where you have different expectations and you're not communicating them with each other but I think you also if you're working with your partner or any family member or close friend you take liberties with each other you would never take with a third party so if you think someone's idea is not great You'd be so diplomatic. You'd shit sandwich it and be like, it's really great for this, but it's actually you should work on this. But actually it was awesome. So well done. With your partner, you're just like, this is really awful. Like I hate it. Like just do it again. You know, you're just – you're too close. So we uh, – really to save the relationship, we were like we have to have hats on for work and hats off for work. We have to not work in the bedroom. They have to be physical, time, emotional boundaries uh, and – since that since that time and the biggest part of that was dividing the business into departments and being the boss of different ones but not overlapping on anything so we always know who you know is the tiebreaker we have been amazing and it's been the most fulfilling exciting journey to work together but we almost lost it there (laughs) (laughs) and the fifth product on your list I think is one that Nick brought into your life which is Chance by Chanel so tell me about the special connection with that scent yeah, I am have always been quite particular with fragrances and also jewelry. So I don't wear a lot of jewelry, uh, and I never really wore fragrance. Like I, I might have used, uh, what's the female equivalent of Lynx? Impulse. <laughs> oh my god, I haven't thought about that in so many years. That's a whole another set of memories, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, but I when everyone else started to move towards perfumes, I just didn't find a scent that I liked enough to kind of invest in. I probably went through a bit of a Ralph Lauren summer phase but I think everyone in the world did apart from that I could never find what I thought was like my signature scent and one day he came home with it and I love I've always loved Chanel I'm not a big designer person but for some reason Chanel has always been my my one and same with mum well I probably obviously got it from mum but uh, Chanel number five was like grandma smell so he came home with chance that I didn't know existed and I think he must have got it on a trip you know, overseas and he came back and he'd he'd picked it up and I was obsessed with it. And I still, it's still, I wear it now. It's the only perfume that I will wear. 
And I just was like, how did you pick one that I would like? I hate every fragrance. I don't even wear one. Like, wh- why would you <laughs> you know how to pick that for me? And the same year, he did the same with jewellery. And again, something I would never have picked myself, but that I loved. And uh, it was very early in the relationship as well. He came on real strong, <laughs> uh, but obviously it worked. <laughs> and I'll just always remember it, he was the first person who'd been it, romantic or otherwise, even friends, who'd been able to choose something like that for me. It's almost like an innate understanding, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredible. Kind of crept me out a little, though. <laughs> I was like, why do you know woman smells? Good like, thing you liked him. Yeah. I know. That's that, that thing. Is it creepy or charming? In this case, it was charming, yeah. obviously. <laughs> it, was, it was borderline. <laughs> obviously, now Matcha Maiden has grown to also include plant-based cafe, Matcha Milk Bar, your brilliant podcast, Is The Able, and obviously your own kind of personal brand and platform as a social influencer as well. Obviously, that's a lot of plates spinning around <laughs> at once. Do you in, Are you the kind of person that enjoys having lots of those different things to dip into or do you ever see yourself or would like to, sometimes would you just like to have one thing that you can focus all your energy in? Both. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think when I had one thing, I didn't, really appreciate the simplicity of it until now having the opposite and if I miss anything from that time it was the straightforward focused nature of being hired to do one thing going to work doing it and going home Uh, whereas when you run a business your actual skill is 10% of what you do and the admin to support that skill is everything else But at the same time, I think looking back, as we mentioned before, through school and uni and childhood, I always did have lots of things going on. Even if I also am a bit of a stress head and find it a bit overwhelming from time to time, I think I do perform better when I have lots of different sides of my personality being stimulated by lots of different things. And there there is something to be said for being able to focus, but I think I've become very good at compartmentalizing and just focusing. I'm not focusing on all eight things at once. I've become better at quarantining time for each thing and wearing different hats. And only recently have I started to be able to get a, a grip on my energy and not kind of treating myself as if I have eight different personalities worth of energy, but definitely in terms of a stimulation, enjoyment, uh, factor I, I love to have lots of different projects on the go maybe not as many as I have right now <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe there's a middle ground between what I had and what I have uh, it's probably time to consolidate because there does come a point where you're just doing nothing well I'm probably verging on that at the moment uh, but I don't think I will ever go back to just one sole thing the sixth product on your list is another perfume which is Stella by Stella McCartney mm-hmm. tell me about this one so The only other perfume that I've ever worn is Stella and it was given to me. It's so funny. I hadn't even thought of this memory until you asked me to write this list. I was on my first long exchange. So not my school one where we went with teachers, but the first one I did sort of by myself at uni. And no, actually, sorry, it was the first one ever. So it was the first time I'd lived away from my parents. It was six weeks when you're 15. That's so long. And uh, at the start, I was very homesick and I wasn't, I'm not a crier. I I thought I was such a badass back then, but for some reason I was jet lagged and I just cried for the first three days. And I remember the younger sister of my host sister at the time was six and she must've had from her mum one of those little tiny samplers of Stella. 
And she came over to me when I was crying one day and just sprayed it. And I loved it. And I was like, I, and I, because I know that I don't like fragrances, I was like, what is that? And because it was a tiny sample, I couldn't find what it was. It didn't say the name. It didn't say Stella on it anywhere. And I reckon I spent four years trying mm. to find that smell again. And I remember I was in either Meyer or David Jones and I saw the bottle and it was the same purple colour as the little sampler had been and I was like, oh, my God, I found it. Like everywhere I had tried to find this smell and I hadn't smelt it on a person, I hadn't smelt it anywhere and I found it and I bought it and then until Nick had bought me Chance, that was the only smell I would wear. But I wouldn't necessarily wear it very often. It was just the only one that if I went to, you know, out to something very special, I'd wear it. Um, the first time I wore a fragrance daily was Chance. But yeah, my first introduction to fragrance generally was Stella and I used to feel so fancy. But it was more just that I looked for it for four years and you can't describe a smell to someone. Like you can't say, you know that smell that's like France with that six-year-old? <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was hard. It's like a song before you know the lyrics. Like who do you hum it to? You know, you can't tell anyone. So yeah, it was a bit of a journey. You are officially a perfume detective. That is so impressive. <laughs> Yeah. What was the bottle that I was like, that's good merchandising, <laughs> matching purples. <laughs> when it comes to your own makeup collection, you've obviously spoken about your preference for natural beauty. Would you, so I, I think I can see where this answer is going, but would you describe <laughs> yourself as a, a maximalist or a minimalist when it comes to your kind of makeup collection at home? So interestingly, I'm probably a minimalist on base and that's come from having like quite severe acne when I was a teenager and having to only wear um, very light things that didn't clog my pores because it would just aggravate my pimples. So base wise, I'm totally not up with all the different things that you need. I don't even know what they're called. Like I'm so bad at it, but I'm probably quite a maximalist in terms of eye makeup. And that comes from having Asian eyes that are single lidded and always wanting to create the sensation or the illusion that they're bigger and having been actually taught how to do that on for stage makeup I have always been quite good at doing like uh, layers of eyeshadow in a smoky eye whether a daytime smoky eye or a nighttime smoky eye people are often like oh wow how did you learn to do that and it came from ballet for sure but also then once I got used to my eyes looking bigger, I was like, well, now they look tiny when I don't have makeup on. I'm that panda meme that has like, you know, the big black things when you've got makeup on then the tiny little black eyes when you don't. So I go very, very light on the base. I don't own many products. I've used the same one for like my whole life. But with eyeshadows, uh, eye liquid eyeliners, mascaras, uh, even brow gels and brow pencils more recently, I'll be a lot more adventurous and have a lot of different shades. Um, I'm kind of a mix of both. <laughs> and the seventh product on your list is, I think, that face product that you're referring to, which is the Youngblood Mineral Powder. Yes. So tell me about why that one works so well for you. So it was recommended to me by uh, the lady who did my facials when I was really young. So about year eight or year nine I started to really break out and like all young people do I started to squeeze every pimple that came out and because I have Asian skin it started to scar very quickly and that was horrifying because I was like I don't want to end up with craters all over my face and I but I wouldn't leave them alone so mum took me to this woman who would do extractions and do them properly and actually get all the gunk out of my skin without 
kind of infecting it and just prodding and poking and not doing it. And I had to learn to not touch my skin. But then I wanted to be able to cover up the pimples when they were kind of aggravated. And she said, you can't use liquid, but there's this amazing mineral powder that has really good coverage in terms of like smoothing out your skin tone it looks like you're wearing liquid foundation but it's a very light powder that your skin can breathe through you can sweat through it you can dab sweat off and it will still stay on your skin but it's very easy to wash off and I have never used another base product ever I'm like that's over 15 years ago and thank god it hasn't been discontinued (laughs) or the shade hasn't changed but I've used the same powder in toffee for over 15 years and I love it you mentioned before, and I can see you sitting in front of me now, your your love of a smoky eye. <laughs> when, when it comes to your signature makeup look or the makeup look that makes you feel most like you, mm-hmm. how would you describe it? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so it's, again, like I'm, I'm sort of half stick to things that I love religiously and half adventurous. And so I will experiment with the different brands of products or the different consistencies of products but the actual technique that I use to do my eyes has been the same since pretty much again I started wearing makeup aside from when I we all went through that super heavy just black eyeliner phase that's done (laughs) (laughs) but once I learned to open up my eyes I I pretty much do three different eyeshadows Uh, If it's daytime, there'll be lighter golds and browns. If it's nighttime, I'll go really hectic, dark black. And I think makeup artists often get confused because if they did that on a double lid, it would look like a goth. But on me, because I only have one lid, it actually disappears. So I wear a lot more eye makeup when I do wear it than the average person. But you can't, it doesn't look like I am. So I do a very light kind of shade uh, on the actual eyelid to kind of create the illusion of depth where a double lid would be. Then a little bit of a darker colour, which is usually a medium brown, uh, sort of a little bit underneath that. It's literally just like a rainbow, like a rainbow upside down U shape. And then really close to the eyes, I'll use a kind of charcoal smoky black. But during the day, I'll just use a, a light brown and kind of shade them all into each other. And then a little bit of liquid eyeliner and mascara. But having said that, most of the time I don't wear makeup at all. So I'm kind of either extreme I'm either at an event with like charcoal hectic smoky eye and lashes or I'm like tiny little baby eyes with just moisturizer and nothing else (laughs) there's like again I'm just a person of contrast I was gonna say it seems to be you either you're either all in or everything yeah in in all aspects (laughs) of your life you also have a brilliant podcast called Seize the Yay Um, and in that you've spoken to some of the most amazing and brilliant business minds not only in Australia but internationally as well (laughs) I know that this will be a hard question and probably one that you get asked a lot but is there anyone in particular who surprised you or the conversation really stayed with you long after you put the episode out yeah it's really hard because I say every week I'm so excited about this guest and I love talking to them so much but I genuinely have been so impressed and inspired by every single person for a different reason and I think part of the way that I put together the list is because they're all so different for different reasons because the big message is that you can find your yay in any different journey and most people on it have been through lots of different phases of not knowing where they're meant to be before they find the one so they have all stuck with me for some particular reason and always surprised me with A, their humility and B, how down to earth almost everyone is despite being either really well known or very successful objectively or whatever it is. Uh, They've all 
just been so, so impressive. There's not one single person that I've been like, oh, or even just that's been exactly as I expected them. They've all surpassed my expectations. But um, there are a couple that I found really, really special. The first is probably, uh, I think it was maybe even in the single digits of episodes that I did. And that was uh, the first couples episode I did, which was with Barney and Kata Miller. So Barney is a world adaptive surf champion who was a youth surf champion when at 20 he was in a really bad car accident. No alcohol, nothing, just a wet day. The driver totally unscathed and Barney became a complete C6 paraplegic. And he was told he would never breathe again by himself, let alone actually get up and move around. Uh, And through his just determination and perseverance, he has been able to not only breathe by himself, but he knelt to propose to Kata. He stood to dance at their wedding and he's since got back in the water to surf and become a surf champion. Not the way that he's dreamt that he would, but he's the happiest, most positive, lighthearted appreciative person who's been through so much adversity and literally faces every day a 70 to 80 to maybe 90 percent harder day than most of us have to face just physically to get up and it just really left an impression on me of what happiness is what adversity is what resolve is and then Kada, who's his you know his carer uh, they met after the accident they were both in difficult phases of their journey and um, fell in love and she's got her own career as a singer but she's also followed him around the world to find experts who could teach him to walk again and their wedding they've got a documentary and a book and they're just a wonderful partnership uh, and both just seriously impressive separately but also together and a it's something about the way they acknowledge hard times. They don't deny it. Like a lot of people brush it off like, oh, it was nothing, or they kind of wallow in it. They do this beautiful thing of acknowledging that it's really hard and that it's been a struggle, but also being really uplifting and still motivated for life. I don't know what it is. There's something just really special about them, and that stuck with me um, probably probably the most out of all the episodes. And I think that, yeah, that's really important to note. I I kind of said business minds, you talk to people from all walks of life. And I think Mm. that's the best part is everyone has lessons to share. And again, going back to all the people that you've spoke for, CCA really is about finding your yay, finding your passion, finding your drive. Speaking to all the people that you have, how who all have different ideas of what happiness is, what success is, how has, and listening to them and in, going through that journey yourself how has your perception of success changed so much and yeah as much personally as from learning from others and watching others also reach the same realizations I think it's gone from very metric based in a very measurable objective way which is important and I don't ever mean that that's not something worthy of aspiring to Uh, but even for someone who I have found, not because I'm better or anything, but literally just in, innately for some reason, that financial metrics are not how I measure success for myself. I do think they're important and I do acknowledge them and I still find that allows freedom and, and other things. But even for someone who doesn't necessarily measure things financially, I have still come from a place of measuring it by 
grades or by objective milestones or by promotions or by things that are what we traditionally associate with success, being at a certain position or just, you know, that whole goal-kicking mentality of being where you want to be um, and outwardly that being visible. What I have come and shifted towards is, particularly for myself, going from somewhere where you were climbing a ladder, literally trying to get from A to B to C to D, like position-wise and then promotion-wise, I've gone very much towards success and happiness being very similar. I kind of think it's rather than something that's external that you tick boxes of, it's something that you feel because noting how everyone defines it so differently, it's more a state you arrive at where you're like, I feel successful I feel like I have done the things that I want to do I'm doing those things I'm doing them well and I'm also happy in my life and having the impact that I want to have I think that's what I think is success where you're really where you feel successful because most people who outwardly look successful don't feel it and don't ever feel satisfied by the goals they just keep setting new ones and the people who maybe don't look as successful objectively or don't measure up to the boxes are in just enormously content with where they are and somewhere in the middle is the intersection of happiness and success that makes me think it's a much more internal kind of barometer and also that hap- uh, even measuring it by success at all is maybe not what we should be aspiring to so much as just peace and contentment because if you're not happy and fulfilled and not that everything has to be good all the time but if you're not overall happy with where you're heading um, I think success kind of doesn't really matter I think that's such a brilliant approach and I love that idea of a barometer rather than it being like a final finite thing Mm. it just changes all the time I love that well also you can never get there if it's a final thing you'll just move it and I think that's what is, what does happen. People set goals and I love the goal-kicking society, but I think tying it too specifically to something is either going to make you feel like you fail if you can never get there or you'll get there and it won't be enough. So if you can attach it to a feeling more than to a state or a particular event, I think we'd, we'd all let ourselves off the hook a little bit. <laughs> and obviously you've had the opportunity to do some incredible things with your work Um I wondered what you kind of regard as those real kind of pinch me moments. I mean, I know that you recently last year spent time on like Richard Branson's <laughs> island, which I yeah. imagine is um, would have not been something you predict would, would no. happen all those years ago. That is definitely the biggest one. I, I still even saying, hearing people say that, I'm like, really? I went there? What do you mean? And it was the weekend before our wedding. Well, actually two weekends before, but pretty much, you know, my bachelorette basically (laughs) and uh when he came out and threw me a bachelorette party basically I was like what is my life what is happening uh the fact that I'm even here and then even to meet him in a context where it's not like he's on stage and I was there that he was actually engaging with what I was doing in my life and like knowing that I was getting married and like giving me wedding advice I was like what is happening uh that was that's definitely a huge highlight and pinch me moment I think um, the first few weeks of waking up and not having to go to the law firm were definitely pinch me moments. Like, what? I, I am making a life out of just foofing and doing what I love. Like, I, I 
I don't get it. Like, why is no one coming to tell me this won't work or it's not okay? And I actually still get that feeling quite often and try not to lose that. I still sometimes on a Tuesday at like 11, I'm like, oh my God, I want an author. This is great. But that first week was just so surreal that I'd actually made the jump and it hadn't all crumbled straight away. (laughs) Uh, The day when we uh, hired my mum full time, she got made redundant after a very lengthy, yucky separation. And instead of it being a very difficult time, immediately I was like, work for us. Like, we've got a business. We need more people. Why don't you just start working? She started the next day. Like, realising we'd built something that could do that uh, was, was just wonderful. And every time I get to sit down with someone who I never, ever, ever thought I would meet, which is almost every time I sit down to do a podcast, I definitely pinch myself just being like, how have you said yes? Like, why? I used to Google you from my little desk when I had 12 followers and didn't even know what Instagram was. (laughs) And I think I always come back to the idea that you can change your life so quickly and dramatically even if you don't think it's possible because it happens. The, the world is moving fast enough for us all to make those dramatic pivots. Who is someone who has really, you feel has really shaped you either personally or professionally? Mm, I always find that one really hard because I think a lot of people can pinpoint particular people and I can definitely pinpoint particular people, but I can pinpoint maybe a hundred particular people for different things. But I think my mum has been a huge, huge influence on being open-minded, appreciating the small things, the enormous sense of gratitude and excitement for life that I have is definitely from her. And also always supporting whatever we choose to do, whether we're crappy at it or awesome at it. It does help you not be so fearful when you know that somebody out there will think it's okay no matter what. That makes a huge difference. Um, and that they'll pick you up when you fall, even if not financially, just emotionally, they'll be like, it's okay. You're still great. You know, unconditional love is a wonderful thing. Uh, my aunties are the same. They have lived around the corner from us and always again, made our ballet runs possible. My, you know, my brother was at different sports to me being at ballet and our whole childhood of indulging in different things, which now it makes me the person I am today. They have been extremely formative. In business, Nick really has opened my mind from being a very risk-averse, predictable, uh, control freak me, which is still there, but it was 90% of me. He has helped the other 10% of me come back out to where it always was when I was a kid and reopened a part of the world that I actually still shudder thinking how easily I could have lost without even knowing before it was too late. And then I, I... couldn't even name the 50 to 100 people who have made it actually it would have been impossible without them and one thing that really strikes me particularly when you're talking about Nick is this idea of how being almost complete opposites can work so well together to be complementary like you said and bring out those different aspects in each other which seems to really have been a really helpful part of what has made both of your success today Mm. that combination of the two of you so that's really lovely (laughs) to hear (laughs) it's challenging at times but uh I think in particularly in business it it's so common for us to just want to be around people who are like us like I'm very fluffy I love the fluff but 
you don't actually need two fluffy people on one team when there's only a few in the team. So, you know, I think your business partners and your – at the very beginning, particularly when you have very limited resources to hire people, you actually need people who, are th- who fill the gaps of things you're not good at because – that's why we were such a good team because between us we covered the bases. We didn't overlap on very many things at all. So together we kind of made one whole entity. <laughs> and I think our relationship in our relationship we're the same. The final product on your list is I think your favorite lipstick which is the MAC Creme de Nude. Yes. So tell me about why this has made the cut. So again, another one of my staples that I found gosh I don't even know how long it's been around, but I don't really remember using any other colour. I don't really wear coloured lipstick. I've always been a bit of a nude um, lip colour person and I don't even know how I found it. I think it's – so it started as Freckle Tone, which got discontinued maybe three years ago and was devastating because it was my perfect colour. Even though they have 59 million nudes, that was just the one but actually, when I look back at photos now, it was too orange. But at the time, I was like, no, this is my it one. Felt right. Yeah, it felt right at the time. Like, maybe I was a bit more tan or using my bronzer. Like, maybe it matched. Uh, and then I found Creme de Nude. I think I had a gap where I had – I'd bought all the old freckle tones knowing it would be discontinued. And then I was about to run out. And then they brought out this new, like, Creme Sheen range. Uh, and I found this t- this colour. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like the old one, but even better. And uh, I only use that. I have two minimum at all times. And if I don't have it on me for an event or something, like I, I'll be uncomfortable. It's just, I don't know why. I don't, I don't think anyone else noticed that, that I look different, but I really notice it. It's just my color that makes real life videos, photos, anything. I feel more comfortable with it on. And when I leave the house without it or forget it or lose it, it's like a disaster. Um, and again, it's one of those things that I'll wear lots of different brands in eyeshadows and other things, but I cannot vary. I've not found anything that's close. And texture too, it's very moisturizing. It's not matte, but it's not shiny. It's just like a balm in a color. MAC do those kind of textures and formulas really well, that kind yeah. of in between, I agree. Which is also another weird thing because again, I'm, I'm kind of very lo-fi generally in makeup. Uh, but then some things, you know, I'll go like quite natural and then I'll go quite technical for other things. Um, but I did have a big natural beauty revolution and really focus on what I was putting on my skin. But then in some areas I'm like, I don't care. That's my lipstick. I don't care what's in it. Like it's terrible to say that, but you know, that's my lipstick. So <laughs> I'm like everything else I'll fix, but <laughs> you got to have your vices. The right. That you that's love. my one thing. <laughs> we are obviously early into 2020. When you look at the year ahead, what's kind of, and it doesn't have to be a specific goal, but what's kind of the, the passion or the focus for this year for you? Oh, well, the the big thing that I think will define this year is I have a book coming out. Incredible. In August or September. It hasn't been decided yet. I finished the manuscript. Uh, I handed it in on January 10. So it was very much a 2020 thing. Um, and... I signed the deal, I think just before our wedding and I wrote it in the shortest time, like I left myself no time to do it, but I actually adore long form writing and I'd forgotten how much I love it. Um, But it was also very stressful at the same time because I felt like I needed to get everything in my brain that's ever gone through my brain out on paper. And 
it was a real bucket list thing for me. I, I wasn't ever sure that I would publish one. Like I, I had had this idea to write the CZA book for maybe three years and I obviously hadn't gotten very far with it without someone giving me a deadline. But then a publisher actually came on board and gave me the opportunity to do it properly. And it was just amazing to have a record of every opinion you have on every major thing about life on a, as a record you know, my, my thoughts and opinions and perspectives on life might not always stay the same, but at this time, the culmination of my whole life is now on paper and I can one day look back and go, you know, even if no one else reads it, I'm like, that's that was me. That whole thing is everything I think. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that just to, for it to actually be a book, like to actually see it as a book and maybe get a few readers and see what other people think about it's pretty much the podcast the ideas that I talk about in the podcast but just in a concise and obviously longer more extended form and it documents really how I have transitioned from that kind of success driven busy um, you know productivity hamster wheel to just really feeling excited and happy every day and I think everyone should be able to feel that and if it helps anyone get even a bit closer to that um, I'm really really excited about that but I also think this will probably be the last year that we aren't trying for children I don't know when we'll obviously have kids but towards the end of the year I think we'll start thinking about it so I'm trying to keep a really open mind to being as spontaneous as possible and if sensible me might say no to something, then 2020 me is going to say, actually, just do it. Like, how often do you get this opportunity, you know? Because there'll be sensible Sarah, uh, but I don't think this year's the year for that. <laughs> I love that. And I can't wait to be reading Seize the A in Ooh. later this year. It sounds absolutely brilliant. Oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> you might read it and go, oh, wow. <laughs> I highly doubt it. You have talked us through the eight products that have a special memory or meaning for you. And now as I send you off to Beauty Island, I am going to do the very cool thing of saying that you can only take one <gasps> with you. You can throw, doesn't have to be practical. I'm giving you an island supply worth of sunscreen, so you don't have to worry Yeah, I was going to say, well. <laughs> we, are, we are all sun safe here on Beauty Island. But if you had to pick just one of your eight to keep you company on the island with the memories that it represents which mm, one would you pick it would be chance I think because if even if I had no one else on the island I would be surrounded by the smells of Nick and my family I'd look horrid but <laughs> who cares no one else is on the yeah no anyway. I can no one else but I'd smell great so <laughs> Sarah thank you so much it has been so lovely to talk to you today thank you so much for having me this island is amazing I always <laughs> joke that it is going to be the island with the best beauty supply with all the products that people take so yeah oh, obviously the all the other people I can I use their stuff yeah I haven't decided whether you're all going to the same island or if there's endless mm. beauty islands but Whichever, you get to choose. Yeah, I'm like, wait, so can I call other guests and can we, like, <laughs> coordinate what we bring? Genius. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it, but you've, cra you've cracked the system. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beauty Island with the incredible and so, so articulate Sarah Davidson. I could listen to her voice all day. And the good news is you can because she has a brilliant podcast called Seize the A which I highly, highly recommend with many great episodes to dive into. 
Uh, you can find out where to follow her, the link to the podcast, and all the products that she spoke about in today's episode in the show notes. If you fancy chatting more beauty, why not? You can find me on Instagram at Beauty Island Podcast or my personal beauty account at Brittany Beauty BTS, where I regularly share products I'm loving and talk about all aspects of beauty culture. Or you can sign up to my regular beauty newsletter. It's a beauty for thoughts and recommendations straight to your inbox. Just head to the show notes for all of those links as well. Thank you so much. And until next time, bye bye.